Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right. Good evening. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, a doctoral program, and two new online master of arts programs. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. It is my pleasure to introduce our speaker this evening, Jonathan Chanzer. Dr. Shanzer is a former terrorism finance analyst at the United States Department of the Treasury and is currently Senior Vice President for Research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He's the author of the new book, Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and the 11 Days of War. Dr. Shanzer, welcome and thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you very much. Um, really great to be with you. I actually, I think it was the first year that IWP began or I guess it was the first year that it was accredited, I actually gave a lecture. It was one of my first years in DC. And uh, I remember just being really intrigued by this new entity and was wondering where it would go. And um, look at you guys, like 20 years later, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, at any rate, uh, I'm, I'm pleased to be with you, pleased to uh, be able to speak about my new uh, book. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about um, the kind of the genesis of the book itself. Uh, and then I'll get into some of the um, observations that I typically have made over the years about similar conflicts. As you know, uh, this is not a new conflict when, when there's war in the Gaza Strip. Then I'll get into some of the specifics about what we just saw back in May. Um, and then I'll end with a little bit of a look toward the future. It's always hard to predict anything um, in the Middle East, but certainly I can talk about how what we just saw, how we might be able to learn from that at, at minimum. So first, um, I'll just say the book um, is new. I'll actually hold it up so folks can see it. There are some in the background over there. I was told that's important. Um, but this is the new book. It's, it's actually out only on Amazon. And the reason um, that is the case is that uh, we produced it through FTD, through Foundation for Defense of Democracies, my think tank. Um, and the idea was that, um, you know, it was time to actually join the, the, the modern era, um, that you actually don't need to work through um, book, book, book companies uh, the way that perhaps we have in the past. This is actually my fourth book, but it's the first time we've done anything like this. Um, and um, the story is that basically I watched the war. I covered it as closely as probably um, anybody here on the U.S. side. I watched almost all of it in Hebrew um, and a good bit of Arabic. Certainly watched what was going on here in the US press, uh, television, uh, certainly what was happening on social media in real time. And um, I, I saw a massive gap in coverage. Now, there are a lot of people in this space that are gonna talk about media bias. I'm not going there. I don't think that's a relevant term for this. Um, and, and then there's also what people refer to all the time now, which is fake news. And I really, I really don't like that term at all. And I, I don't find it particularly helpful. Um, what I would say, though, is that there is a massive gap in coverage in the choices that um, reporters made during that conflict. In fact, it felt to me as I watched it in foreign language media um, and then watched the coverage here at home, it was like there were two different wars going on. 
And um, to me, it felt like the gap was so significant that I needed to write. And so after 11 days of, of just not sleeping very much, I, I kind of crashed for a weekend. Um, and then what I did was um, I wrote for eight days and I pulled together a draft that was about 120 pages long um, when all was said and done. Um, then I went to Israel. And what was interesting was that I was able to go during a moment where Israel would let people like me go in. Um, I you know, been vaccinated and felt reasonably comfortable traveling. Um, but the Israelis have been notoriously brutal about letting people in. Um, and so I went, the, the process was about as bad as you think it would be. Had to get a test before I went, um, got swabbed when I landed, had to get a blood test actually to make sure that I had enough antibodies. Um, uh, and then I had to wait to get cleared to get what they called a green check mark. Um, but what was amazing was that when I landed, everybody was sort of like, hey, you don't need to wear a mask. You're in Israel. Everything's fine. And, and so went in Rome, right? Took it off. But it was amazing. Ten days later, um, the country had basically shut down over Delta. And I had a real sense of what was coming here to the U.S. because the Israelis have been um, kind of the canary in the coal mine and when it comes to the virus. Um, but during those ten days, I was able to actually meet with a lot of senior Israeli officials um, I was able to talk to some of the, the, the um, military officials that um, ran the war uh, in Gaza. We actually was able to sit in the control center um, on the Gaza, uh, on the southern front. Um, and I got a sense of what they saw, and I got a, a, a chance to hear people talk about that war. Um, I actually stood out on a hill overlooking the Gaza Strip and was able to see sort of how closely packed this whole area is and, and how much of a challenge it was for Israel to defend and certainly how much, how difficult it must have been for the people of Gaza to endure something like this. But at any rate, the, uh, when I got back from, from, uh, from these interviews, I was able to then sit down and edit and edit some more and edit again, by the way, for anyone that's written a book, um, don't let anybody tell you otherwise, the writing is not the hard part, the editing is the brutal part. Um, and you know, special thanks to the folks that, that read it multiple times, um, including members of my family. But ultimately, the goal was to get something out that would be clean um, and quick. And we went from ceasefire to bookshelf in 166 days. I don't know if it was a record in publishing, but certainly it was a record for me. Um, I've never written anything that quickly. Um, to my knowledge, there is only one um, uh, typo, which by the way, I'll say if anybody can find it, there is an FTD challenge coin in it for you. Uh, I've made that promise on, on Twitter. My, my 12 year old son actually found it uh, when he read the book. Um, it was after we were done. We'll fix it at some point, but right now I'm just waiting to see whether other um, errors come in. But at any rate, um, so that, that was kind of the, the, um, the, the process of writing it. Now, in terms of um, Gaza itself, for, for the uninitiated, Gaza is not a, a, a terrific place to live. I, I talked about it in the beginning of the book. I visited there in 1998. It was the only time I was able to, to get in. After that, shortly thereafter, um, it became kind of a terrorist safe haven. And um, it became a difficult place to go and visit, let alone report on. Um, the, the history of it is this, is that it was it served as, as kind of a hotbed of activity um, for the um, the... The, the PLO and some of its related offshoots. And this happened um, in the aftermath of the 1948-1949 War of Independence. Egypt um, controlled that territory and it um, and they really offered 
the Palestinian terrorist groups to operate there with, with impunity. Um, it was only until the, and, and it was that way from 1948, 49, all the way through 67, the Israelis conquered that territory in the 1967 Six Day War. Um, and, uh, and, and so begins, you know, what is widely described as the occupation. Interestingly to me, no one ever talked about how the Egyptians occupied it before then, um, or how it was being used. Um, but ultimately, the Israelis felt like they needed to control this territory. I think that was a fateful decision that many in Israel would probably question um, years later. But at the time, I think it was about trying to get the territory under control. Um, there was, uh, of course, uh, in, in the early 1990s, the Oslo process. This is the peace process that began um, uh, through Yasser Arafat and the Israelis with American um, arbitration. Uh, there was a, a time where it looked like the Gaza Strip was going to become an independent or part of an independent Palestinian state. In fact, if you recall, when Yasser Arafat returned triumphantly to the Palestinian territories uh, with the creation of the PA, he went to Gaza first. That's where he was welcomed. That's where he was cheered on as a, you know, a liberator, um, sort of George Washington of the Palestinians, if you will. I think that proved wrong over time. Uh, but the Gaza Strip remained a core component of, uh, of the two Palestinian territories, West Bank being the other side of it. Um, it was always a bit awkward that the Gaza Strip was uh, separated from the West Bank, separated by a, a pretty solid chunk of Israel. Um, there were talks at one point about a tunnel or a bridge or some kind of superhighway that would connect the two territories. Um, but with the, the unraveling of the peace process in the year 2000 and the beginning of what was known as the Second Intifada, um, which was a really a campaign of suicide bombings and, and irregular warfare that led to um, a situation where the Israelis began to build a uh, fence around the Gaza Strip and uh, around the entirety of the Gaza Strip and around a good chunk of the West Bank. Now, in Gaza, you have to understand this was something of a death sentence, but it was the only thing that the Israelis could do, given the sheer amount of violence uh, that they were contending with during this low-intensity low war that took place between 2000 and 2005. Um, and, and basically what happened was, is this is an area around the size of Washington, D.C. It's got about 2 million people in it, so very densely packed, um, and not a lot of natural resources and a lot of people claiming to be refugees from the original conflict. Of course, that is not mathematically possible that there would be five-year-old refugees today or even 20-year-old refugees today. These are the descendants of refugees, but they live on as symbols of the Palestinian cause. And that's not exactly helped the Gaza Strip develop an economy. Uh, but so, you know, sort of add the economic misery and the political misery of the Gaza Strip um, to the fact that the Israelis had basically cordoned it off to prevent the infiltration of, uh, of terrorists and those that would do Israel harm. And it created, I think, additional hardships. I don't think there's any, any question about that. Um, but that was, uh, from Israel's perspective, something that was necessary. I think, by the way, that you know, it, it became something that was almost viewed as necessary among other Arab states over the years. Of course, not widely celebrated by the Palestinians. Um, but the, the really interesting stuff came in 2006. Um, 2006 was when the, uh, the, the Palestinians held an election. This was done at the urging of the Bush administration. And um, uh, the goal really was to try to um, mitigate the um, terrorism that had proliferated uh, across the, both Palestinian territories. Um, I should note, by the way, that by 2005, um, the Israelis 
um, had withdrawn from the Gaza Strip entirely. Um, and so it was a, a fully Palestinian territory, if you will. Um, and then the goal from there was to try to turn the place into something of a democracy. So at the U.S. urging Palestinians hold elections, it was believed that the Fatah faction, um, the somewhat secular and pragmatic faction of the Palestinians, would win that election. It did not. It was Hamas that won. And a political standoff ensued through the following year. Um, it was 2006 that those elections were held. In 2007, uh, Hamas waged a civil war uh, in the Gaza Strip. They took it over by force. It was, uh, by all accounts, a brutal war. Did not get the kind of coverage that you would think, given the saturation of coverage of the Middle East in general here in the United States and around the world. I think that was primarily because of the confusion over the fact that it was a Palestinian civil war, not a war between Arabs and, and, and Israelis. Uh, which is, I think, probably easier to cover and a bit more formulaic, if you will. Um, so what happened was is Hamas took over the Gaza Strip by force. They pushed people off, off of tall buildings to their death. They shot people in the legs and arms to ensure permanent disabilities. It was a brutal war. Um, the end result was that the Gaza Strip remained under the full control of Hamas. Um, Hamas was not able to take part in the political process, so they did what um, they thought they needed to do, which was to um, win by other means. And that's exactly what they did. Fast forward to today, that situation has not changed. The Gaza Strip is still under the full control of Hamas. And during that time, we have seen four wars. Um, the first war came in uh, 2009. Uh, it was a short war. Uh, then came 2012. Then came a war shortly thereafter in 2014. And then we had a seven-year hiatus between the 2014 war and the one that we just witnessed in the Gaza Strip uh, in May. Now, I will tell you that over the course of watching these wars, in some cases I've been on the ground in, um, in the West Bank, as well as in, uh, in Israel proper during, uh, in, in particular, the 2012 and 2014 wars. I was there. I watched it um, up close. I watched it on TV when I could. I talked to people when they were willing to talk to me. Um, but one of the things that you see over time is that these conflicts have taken on a sort of a, um, uh, sort of a, a pattern that you can really begin to get a feel of when they're heating up, um, when they're um, reaching a crescendo, when they're petering out, and when they're about to end. And then you kind of almost can predict what will happen after that. And, and basically it's this, that Hamas, beginning in the early 2000s, um, especially after that terrorism, um, uh, or the anti-terrorism barrier was created in uh, around the Gaza Strip and around the West Bank, after those um, uh, barriers were created, it became a lot harder for Hamas to engage in the practice of suicide bombing, right? So without that ability to do that, because the choke points were, um, were, were more easily controlled by the Israelis. Um, now, as soon as that happened and the suicide bombings began to trail off and they really began to trail off in 2005, I think there's only been one or two that have been recorded ever since. Um, so Hamas began to look for other means to terrorize the Israelis. They looked for other means to attack as their raison d'etre for, for, I mean, you know, their raison d'etre is to attack Israel at the end of the day. Um, now, the group began to fire what is known as homemade rockets. They're called Qassam rockets. Um, they are often made out of um, pipe. They are homemade they are, in some cases, they're called firecrackers from at least those that, that think that Hamas has a, a right to fire them. 
I personally have seen some of the grave damage they've done over the years, but really what they do is they sow terror um, in the uh, Israeli population. You see Israelis running for cover in the areas that are closest to the Gaza Strip, some of the towns um, that abut the Gaza Strip. You know, you hear about how the, the, the residents have something like 30 seconds to get to a shelter so that they can protect themselves or their family against the destruction of, of these rockets. And that's really what Hamas intended to do. They fire them blindly, they're unguided. Um, so in effect, they are a war crime, um, in, in uh, technically speaking anyway. Um, and the, the goal was to really sow that kind of terror. And, um, and so over time, um, this became the preferred tactic. And, and when they crossed a certain red line, when Hamas crossed the red line, whether it was firing too many, whether it was firing at Jerusalem, Israel's capital, whether it was firing in the Tel Aviv area, which is the, um, the most populated, uh, the highest, popu highest density population center, this, these would be red lines for, um, for, for Israel, and then you'd see them begin to attack. Um, the goal was always to try to minimize casualties on the Israeli side when responding. Um, and so, you know, it was always precision munitions or as much as humanly possible. Uh, to do that, there was always something that, um, and I think many people are, it's lost on them even to this day, that Israel actually builds up what's known as target banks, that during the time of relative quiet, the Israelis are constantly watching through satellite, um, they're listening with SIGINT, they have human on the ground, human intelligence on the ground, and they're trying to collect information about where the rocket caches are, um, where the terrorist cells are operating, and they don't necessarily take um, action when they have that intelligence. They wait until um, there is a reason to fight, and then they take them out. And it often looks to the untrained eye that Israel's sort of lashing out in response to Hamas attacks um, that have just taken place. In fact, what the Israelis have been doing for years, four rounds now, is when hostilities do emerge and the Israelis believe that a certain red line has been crossed, then they begin to pummel those pre-approved targets. These are legally approved by the Israel Defense Force, by the lawyers uh, from within, from the uh, their Department of Justice, and um, and from the Shin Bet also, the internal security services uh, of the Israelis. And so it's a it's a it's a constant um, sort of monitoring that leads to this target bank. And then the goal has just been to try to keep those casualties down. Um, you don't usually see. Um, uh, uh, Israel put forces on the ground themselves. They don't like to do it. It's actually usually a recipe for disaster. It's an asymmetric war, sort of like the, the very tough learning curve that the United States had in Iraq, right, where you start going house to house and you're going to see the casualties jump because uh, you're not playing on your home turf. The Israelis, I think, have learned that over time. 2014 was a significant exception to that, um, but it was still a challenge. And, and, you know, a lot of that was just about trying to find soldiers that had been kidnapped. That's, of course, a huge red line for the Israelis. Um, and, and so that's where you've seen the significant escalation. Uh, but basically, as these wars play out, the Israelis run out of targets um, that have been pre-approved in advance. They continue to try to identify targets that they can hit um, in direct response. But, you know, the goal is always, at least for the Israelis, to try to minimize casualties. You see them, you know, dropping these so-called knock-knock bombs on the roofs of buildings that may be destroyed. Um, they're actually able to call the cell phones of the people that are inside a lot of these buildings to warn them of what is to come. They'll drop leaflets. 
Um, they do whatever they can. Of course, that doesn't mean that the Israelis don't have uh, that they, they don't cause collateral damage. They do, as the, as is the case in in any war. Um, but they've done a lot to try to um, to be as precise as possible. This most recent round, they used artificial intelligence in their efforts to do this. Um, the, the, the sort of mechanized nature of the uh, Israeli military and the way they fight wars in Gaza, in particular, it's really remarkable. Although one of the one of the guys that I talked to in the IDF during my ten day visit, you know, I asked him about you know the use of some of these tactics, and it was really interesting. He said, "Look, you know, we do it." Um, we don't really get excited about the use of some of these, you know, artificial intelligence and some of these high tech weapons. He said, you know, we have the 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 pleasure. He put it in air quotes. You know, we have the pleasure of testing out some of these systems because we go to war so often in the Gaza Strip. And so there's there's sort of a sense of need in developing some of these weapons. Uh, but no weapon is more impressive, in my view, than Iron Dome. Um, Iron Dome is the weapon system, it's the air defense system that the Israelis rolled out, I think it was about 12 years ago now, maybe a little bit longer, maybe 13 or 14. Um, and it is, it's short range missile defense, uh, rocket defense, actually. Um, they, the Israelis have other layers for longer range threats, but this uh, system knocks out something like 90% of the rockets that are fired into Israeli airspace, um, sometimes even higher. Um, and it's 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 truly remarkable. What it's done is it's saved thousands of Israeli lives. But I think, and and I think this has been largely unreported. It saves a ton of, of Palestinian lives too, because what it's done is that it's allowed the Israelis to um, have the time and space to make decisions about whether they're going to uh, respond um, in, with overwhelming force every time you know they sustain a rocket attack. If they did that, then Gaza would become something of a parking lot, which of course is in no one's interest. And, um, and, and so the Israelis have been deploying this. Each interceptor costs something like fifty dollars to $100,000. So you think about when 4,000 rockets were fired as they were during this most recent round, that's a, that's a lot of money that they're spending. It actually ended up being so that um, the amount of damage sustained in the Gaza Strip was roughly equal to the amount of money that Israel expended in um, in interceptors alone, and um, but you know there is an interesting debate that's going on in Israel about whether Iron Dome gives Israel a false sense of security um, that it doesn't let the uh, people of Israel feel that they are truly at war. In fact, when these wars do break out, I still call them wars, but the Israeli military does not. They call them operations. And they really try to differentiate because they say when the Israeli public will have to go to war, like a multi-front war or, you know, a war with, uh, you know, a state actor like Iran, not a non-state actor like Hamas, then they will know what war is, that this does not feel like war. But there is a debate in Israel about whether it has lulled the IDF into a sense of complacency, that they're not uh, maybe taking the full measures that they might be you know, uh, tempted to take in order to truly eradicate the threat of Hamas and to treat it like the threat that it is at the end of the day, that were it not for Iron Dome, there would be a heck of a lot more damage inside Israel. And so the debate rages. Um, I don't suspect it's going to be um, uh, settled anytime soon. But uh, this is the cadence. And, and essentially, when, when Hamas uh, starts to expend its its uh, higher range, higher payload rockets. And the Israelis have expended their target bank. An Iron Dome has, you know, basically done its job. The two sides get tired. 
Sometimes we have seen moments where actors like Qatar and Turkey have tried to inject themselves into the diplomacy, into the ceasefire talks, and they've been able to extend the war as what happened in 2014. Could have been a lot shorter. Um, I think the role that they played um, in trying to appeal to then Secretary of State John Kerry extended the war from what might have been two weeks to um, what ended up being 50 days. Um, diplomacy can extend these uh, ceasefire talks. I don't think that that's necessarily a good thing. I think the Biden administration learned from that. They wanted a quick ceasefire this time around, and um, and and they got it. And and I think full credit to them for that. Uh, but once the um, the cadence begins to drop, the ceasefire comes into um, full view. Uh, the Egyptians negotiated this one. I think uh, they they played a significant uh, role last time as well. Um, before that, probably less of a role there. And it's always been the U.S. that's tried to take the lead. Um, and then, you know, when the war finally ends, there comes the moment of rebuilding. Everybody looks to Gaza and the devastation. This lost district that it is um, requires a huge amount of humanitarian assistance. The Qataris have been playing a significant role there since 2012. Money continues to trickle in from the Turks and from across the Arab world. Although this recent time around, been a little interesting. You've got the um, Arab states, in particular, those that signed the Abraham Accords. They're souring a bit on uh, how often Hamas uh, prompts these wars and, and, and whether it's worth spending the money to rebuild it, knowing that the Israelis are almost certainly going to have another round. And I can, you know, the way that this one ended, it is all, all but guaranteed that there will be a fifth round of, of war in the Gaza Strip. Um, there was fear. It's funny, uh, you know, uh, we, we fear every war and we don't welcome any of them. But there was talk in my shop that, you know, just the name of my book, Gaza Conflict 21, um, you know, the idea that that um, <laughs> there would only be one war in 2021 was was not certain. And, you know, there, you know, there was a flare up even after the ceasefire uh, was announced. Um, you know, Hamas continued to press for better terms of that ceasefire. And, and that meant using some of the rockets um, and other tactics that they use, including uh, balloons with explosives affixed to them that they send into Israeli airspace. Um, these are the sorts of things that can, um, you know, potentially put a ceasefire on tilt. Uh, but the Egyptians did a good job in, in, in locking this one down. And there is, I think, political will right now to keep it in place. Um, but these are all things that we see time and time again. Now, um, I'll move on to some of the specifics of the war itself, and I, I think I got about maybe 20, 25 minutes to try to get through the war. Um, the first thing was how it started. Um, it was largely blamed in our media on a real estate dispute, which I found to be really odd. Um, basically, it was a real estate dispute dating back to um, almost a century ago, uh, where Jews had apparently bought uh, territory, bought property in eastern Jerusalem in a neighborhood called Sheikh Jarrah. Um, it was um, territory that remained in their hands until the 48-49 war, at which point the Jordanians conquered Jerusalem and um, they took it over from 1948 until 1967, until the 67 war. It, 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 during that time period, the Jewish owners of those properties were not able to live there. Um, and it became Arab property. Now, when the Israelis retook the territory in 67, um, the, Arab, um, the Arab inhabitants remained, um, and the Israelis took them to court over the years. Um, and the real estate dispute in question that purportedly sparked the war 
stemmed from a uh, decision that was imminent in the Israeli legal system about the status of that property. It was widely reported that the Israelis were about to evict Arabs from their homes in East Jerusalem and that this was kind of the outrage that was building all around the, the Palestinian territories and in particular among uh, the Gaza Strip. But I have to say, um, in my experience, um, uh, real estate disputes don't cause wars. Um, rockets, uh, bullets, uh, bombings, that causes war. And in this case, I think it's, it's not even a matter of dispute that um, Hamas fired the first rockets and they did so purportedly in solidarity with those in Jerusalem who were fighting for their rights. Um, you know, there were other things that compounded that. I mean, it was Ramadan, which is a particularly sensitive time in the Arab world, certainly no different among the Palestinians. Um, there was Jerusalem Day where Israelis were celebrating the unification of Jerusalem or reunification, as they call it, in the 60s, after the 67 war. So there were all sorts of reasons why, um, you know, there, there was potentially tension. Um, but one of the things that was ignored was the Palestinian political dynamic. I mentioned a little bit about that before. But in the aftermath of the Abraham Accords, the Palestinians really felt like their narrative was um, not gaining traction any longer internationally, that if the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco and Sudan would be willing to make peace with Israel, well, then perhaps the Palestinian cause was just not looking very organized. So they decided the entire Palestinian political spectrum uh, kind of grouped together and decided to hold elections. And when the Biden administration came in, they supported it. Um, I made it very clear. I thought that was a mistake uh, because it would include the participation of Hamas. And there are laws in the books here in the United States, including some that were spearheaded by a guy you may have heard of named Senator Joe Biden, back then Senator Joe Biden, um, uh, that basically says that if Hamas uh, takes part in a Palestinian election, it will trigger a, in, uh, a cut in funding and it will trigger a cut in political activity as well. So this would have been a disaster for the Palestinians had it gone through. Um, thankfully, in my view, uh, cooler heads prevailed. The Palestinians, I think at American urging, decided to step back from the brink Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, Fatah faction, canceled those elections. But what I think was lost on a lot of people was that Hamas already believed that they were going to have a role to play. And they were willing to start to become part of the Palestinian political system after years of being kept out, um, especially after the last round of elections in 2006, where they were barred um, from even forming a government. So they were ready to join. They were denied the opportunity. And then, you know, there's the question of, well, how do they want to express their frustration? How do they want to uh, express their anger? Well, if they can't participate politically, well, maybe they do it through violence. That's what they've been doing since their inception in 1988. They've been a violent faction. And so in my view, they took the opportunity to try to reassert their primacy in the Palestinian political arena. They did so by firing rockets on Israel and at the same time trying to, um, you know, protect Israel, or rather protect the Palestinians from Israel, um, pre, you know, defend the Palestinian cause. All of this is um, you know, debatable, I would say, but I think it's probably more realistic than blaming it on a real estate dispute that's been around for 100 years. Um, but so th that was probably one of the more uh, sort of strange um, uh, moments was probably the beginning of it. I'm seeing a note here, please add a subtitle at your book. Um, it's uh, Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War is the subtitle, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War. Um, at any rate, so that was the, kind of the first moment where I scratched my head. 
um, and sort of looking at the so-called causes of the war. Um, that then came actually a really wild moment, um, and maybe the moment that turned the tide of the war. Um, and that was, I think it was on the third day, um, there was a tweet that was issued by the IDF, the Israel Defense Force. And they indicated they were putting troops on the ground in the Gaza Strip. And I remember actually I was sitting outside, I was actually helping my wife build a garden, uh, taking a little bit of a breather after a long day of work. And um, uh, I said, oh, I, I gotta go in and I gotta watch this. So I turn on um, Apple TV, by the way, is great for those who wanna watch foreign language broadcasts live and, and even be able to go back and watch them again. Um, by the way, not an even investor of Apple, but big fan of that product. Um, they uh, So I, I turn on one Israeli TV channel and, uh, you know, there's a reporter who's actually holding up his phone and he's like, you know, I cannot confirm from my sources that Israeli troops are on the ground. And he's looking behind him at the, uh, at, at, the at the Gaza front and he says, I don't see anything either. So then I turn it to another channel. Same thing. Reporters like scratching his head going, you know what, I, I don't I don't see this. And none of my sources are telling me this is true. Um, it turns out that um, that that the intended audience was likely Hamas. Uh, they had filled the, a labyrinth of tunnels that they had secretly created over probably five, 10 years, um, a, a very complex network of tunnels with the expectation that they would fight Israel, um, Israeli ground forces. The goal was to be able to pop up from these tunnels and kidnap and kill as many soldiers as possible. The Israelis had apparently caught wind of this well in advance. They're known for you know, their excellent intelligence especially in the Gaza Strip, a small area where you know, they, the Israelis have a lot of assets. So they were able to uh, sort of sniff this out. And as the commandos, many of them, most of them were trained in Iran, um, as they filled the tunnels, the Israelis started bombing them and took out um, a key asset of Hamas. It was, a, I think, a, a blow to the morale uh, of the terrorist organization, but also um, you know, it, it took out a lot of their key fighters. And so it was a major mo moment of victory for, for the Israelis, and it began to turn the tide of this 11-day war. Um, but what was interesting was that in the aftermath, you saw a lot of uh, American reporters, Western reporters, were irate with the Israelis, um, really furious that uh, the Israelis had misled. Now, the spokesperson for the Israeli military said that he had gotten um, misinformed by command and that after an hour, they had changed the tweets and changed their statements, and they were trying to correct the facts. But there were a lot of reporters who said, look, this was deliberately, you know, like a, an information operation. The thing that just struck me was that it may well have been, and, and if so, then, you know, the Israelis, you know, I think they got their slap on the wrist. They certainly got a lot of bad press as a result of this. But what was amazing to me was that the reporters themselves weren't, clearly weren't watching Israeli TV. Had they watched the Israeli TV, by the way, had they watched even, you know, maybe even Palestinian TV, they might have seen that it just wasn't the case. And um, and I, it just struck me that there was a real, I mentioned up front, there was a real disconnect between the way that uh, these conflicts are reported in the West and how they're reported in Israel. And I would say that they really could benefit here in the West from being having the opportunity to look at, 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 at what the Israelis are reporting. These are pretty serious reporters. They're not out there trying to spread propaganda. I mean, I have, I've seen that they, you know, that they, they're actively trying to just get to the truth. And um, I found that over time, of course, you need to learn the language and everything else, which I did in graduate school, but, but you really get a lot more color about these conflicts and, and a lot more granularity. You hear from better experts. 
um, and the reporters themselves will not be, um, you know, um, they will not cower. If they don't think that they're getting the right story, they will challenge it. And they certainly did during that episode. Um, the Israelis got their, their tactical win, if you will, maybe a strategic loss with the media. But um, I would say that they probably, um, you know, probably felt justified, even if it was a, an information operation. But they walked away with, you know, uh, having destroyed a significant asset of their enemy. Um, another moment similar to this one was um, uh, the destruction of what was known as the Al-Jala Tower. This was a, uh, an apartment building that uh, was right in a, a pretty significant population center. The Israelis um, you know, began uh, warning the, uh, those that were inside the building that it was time to get out because there was going to be a bombing of the building. Um, what was particularly controversial about that was the fact that, um, that uh, the, uh, Al Jazeera and Associated Press were based in the building and the Israelis um, were telling everybody to clear out, didn't matter, you had to get out. Um, later, it, it emerged that the Israelis um, had identified a Hamas uh, office. It was really strange that there'd be a Hamas office in the same building as AP and Al Jazeera. Um, but this is what they've alleged, and apparently they've shown the proof of this to the U.S. intelligence committee, uh, community, and it's been, um, at least it's not being disputed, uh, which I thought is, is pretty telling. Um, but anyway, they, they cleared everybody out. They dropped the knock-knock bomb. They called everybody cell phones, all the measures that I talked about earlier, and then they destroyed the entire building. Um, the press came out hard against the Israelis, saying that they were trying to disrupt coverage of the conflict itself, that they were trying to obfuscate the truth, they were trying to make things more difficult. Um, I think the Israelis have since, I think, gone back and proven um, a lot of their critics wrong. Um, and, but I think, and by the way, in trying to jam Iron Dome, which is what this was an attempt by Hamas to do, you could have really seen some significant damage done. And I mentioned the way that it sales, saves not just Israeli lives, but Palestinian lives as well. I shudder to think what it might have looked like had Iron Dome ceased working you know, halfway through the conflict. It, it could have gotten rather ugly rather quickly. Um, but one of the things that struck me was, was just, the, the, I, I would just say questions about Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera has been targeted by the United States military in Afghanistan and Iraq because uh, their reporters uh, have this uncanny ability to show up just before attacks are carried out. They have the uncanny ability to have um, statements issued by terrorists, you know, within seconds after a terrorist attack has taken place. So, you know, I, I just, it felt very odd to me that Al Jazeera wasn't mentioned in this light um, in the U.S. In fact, there was even, um, you know, an Al Jazeera reporter, uh, actually the daughter of Samuel Arian, who was indicted in an American court for supporting Palestinian Islamic Jihad. His daughter ran a piece in the New York Times, hammering the Israelis for attacking the building. And, and of course, none of this was, was noted. Um, you know, I, I see I've got probably about five or 10 minutes left. Let me, um, I, I, I rambled on a little bit longer than I had uh, hoped to. I, I speak without notes, um, which I think is generally a positive, but um, you know, sometimes I find myself either going a little shorter or a little long. So what I'm gonna do is um, I'm gonna jump to two things at the end um, that I thought were, were just really notable. One was, the ceasefire. Um, the ceasefire was brokered by the Egyptians, as I noted. Um, and what I what I noted in particular was that um, the news of the ceasefire began to trickle out in the Israeli and Arabic press. I saw it on uh, Al Arabiya, I think, first. Um, that you know that they had reached this ceasefire agreement, but it wasn't going to come into effect 
within uh, for another two days. Um, and, and that's when I think it, it, it got interesting for me because, um, you know, up until that point, Biden had been incredibly supportive of Israel, even when there were mistakes that were made, you know, the media mess you know, on those two different um, occasions that I mentioned, um, the Jala Tower, as, as well as the metro system, as it was called. Um, but, you know, and, and the Israelis every day in the press were thanking um, uh, Biden for having their back. Uh, the word in, in Hebrew is gibui. They, I heard that I don't know how many times. They were thanking Biden profusely for it, saying the president had done a great job in supporting their efforts. Um, then, then on the day that the ceasefire was announced, that's when Biden started talking tough and leaks were coming out of the White House. And I was hearing from a number of reporters and sort of off the record conversations about things that were leaking out. And they were saying that Biden was done kidding around with Bibi and that it was time to put this thing to an end. It was a blank check as far as I was concerned. Um, the Biden administration knew that the war was ending. They knew that the, the cadence of the attacks, both from Hamas and from Israel's responses, that they had dropped to a minimum. Um, I, I felt like I was watching a messaging campaign, not to Israel, not to the Middle East, but to um, the squad, uh, to the progressives in the American Congress that had been howling about uh, American support for Israel uh, and calling to defund it, including, by the way, um, you know, during and after the war, there was talk about even defunding Iron Dome, which um, is a scary thing to think about in and of itself, um, as well as precision-guided munitions, which also cut down on the casualties. So the messaging there was was crazy, but but I have to say that the, the messaging from the president was a bit odd. It really did look like he was um, bending over backwards to message to the progressives. Um, look, the president, I think, was playing American politics. Um, which is, you know, certainly is right. And he knows the system as well as anybody. Um, but I felt that uh, that was certainly something worth noting that, um, that that ceasefire was announced, you know, really. And then, and then we began to see the tough messaging. You could see the, 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 the sort of um, the, the chicken and egg um, there. Um, look, the last thing that I'll just note here before I, I try to wrap up is the broader context of all of this. Um, it did not get a lot of attention, and still doesn't, that Hamas has received a huge amount of assistance from Iran over the years. Um, and you know, it's been it's come in the form of hundreds of millions of dollars since the late 1980s. It's come in the form of training, um, rockets, um, ammunition, uh, commando training, you name it, uh, UAVs. I mean, the Iranians have been there and provided a ton of assistance to the Israelis over the years. Um, they didn't get enough credit, if you will, for, for being behind this. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the fact that, you know, Hamas has actually learned to do a lot of this stuff itself over the years. It's kind of the, the, the whole adage about, give you know, give a man a, a, a fish or teach a man how to fish, um, you know, and, and, you know, they taught Hamas how to fish, so to speak. They really did. And so while we saw fingerprints of Iran throughout the conflict, it, we didn't necessarily see direct involvement. We saw some rockets, by the way, that were provided to the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which answers a little bit more directly to Iran. Um, and, and But we, we didn't really hear a lot of the, I think, necessary analysis about that. And, and the other thing that I think was just really odd for me was that you know the US knew this. Um, the White House knew this and did not, um, didn't really weigh in on how the optics of a return to the nuclear deal might look. Um, in other words, you know, right now the U.S. is still in the process. At the end of the month, uh, actually, right now they're they're having these conversations with um, uh, the Iranians 
about a return to the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, what I would describe as the flawed nuclear deal of 2015, um, the goal would be to provide billions of dollars in sanctions relief to the Iranians in exchange for a return to the deal. Um, but really what, what I think was notable to the Israelis and, and I think really began to sort of trickle out over time is, you know, how can the United States provide that kind of money to Iran, knowing that Iran provides significant financial assistance to all of its proxies, many of whom target Israel? But the idea here is that, you know, it's it's very likely that if we return to the deal, and that's not a, a foregone conclusion right now, but America will be funding both sides of the next Gaza conflict, the fifth Gaza conflict, whenever that comes, right? I mean, the United States provides direct assistance to the Israelis. Most of it's spent here on military equipment, but it's direct assistance nonetheless. Um, and then there's the um, the fact that, you know, if the U.S. starts providing that sanctions relief, it will trickle down to Hamas indirectly from Iran, and then the U.S. will, will really be funding both sides. That's not, that's not a place that I think we want to be. I think we should be more clear-eyed about how Iran uh, supports these proxy groups. And, um, you know, I, I, I address a lot of that in the book. I really do get into the, the history of it and, and, you know, really cite chapter and verse treasury designations and sanctions, um, you know, a testimony by CIA officials, um, Canadian officials and the like. It's, it's indisputable at this point and really just curious that this didn't get a lot of attention at the time. Um, so, you know, and I think that leads me to the last point, and I, I've got about four minutes here, it looks like, so it's it's working out. Um, uh, you know, all of this happened at a particularly odd time. Um, you know, we're looking at a time where the United States is looking to get out of the Middle East. We're looking at, you know, obviously the debacle that took place in Afghanistan. Um, we, we signaled that we were going to do it, and we did it, and it, it, it did not go well. Um, you know, but the goal here is to, you know, in the in the parlance of, of those that have been advocating for it, it's, um, you know, to end the forever wars. Um, but it means largely getting out of the region. And I would say that the U.S. has a lot of thinking to do. I'm thinking just, you know, about prescriptions at this point. As we engage in this sort of neo-isolationist approach and we begin to pull out of the Middle East, we need to think about who's going to keep it, who is going to monitor it, who is going to safeguard it. We don't want the region to fall to um, the, the, the sponsors of terrorism and, and Islamist radicals, if you will. Um, I know that the sort of whole war on terrorism thing is passe for us. Um, people want to pivot away from that and pivot to Asia in particular to focus on the China challenge. That's fine. But the fact remains is that the asymmetrical violence that we've seen that characterized the war on terror that we fought uh, against, the, the terrorist groups we fought against over the years, it's still there. It's still there in the Middle East, and we're going to need partners to help keep that part of the world stable. Um, and there is going to be, uh, I think, some real decisions that need to be made about how we support those that fight these terrorist groups. Israel is one of them. Um, I would actually even argue that the, the Saudis are fighting the Houthis right now in Yemen, another Iran-backed group. Um, the United States actually pulled its support for the Houthis in January when the Biden administration came in. It was one of the first acts that they took in the space of foreign, in the realm of foreign policy. I've got to say, I think it's a mistake. I think the U.S., as we think about recalibrating, as we think about rebalancing, as we think about ending these long-term commitments in the Middle East, we need to think about who is going to inherit the region 
in order to ensure that a U.S.-led world order in some shape or form continues to endure. I'm not sure that I saw a whole lot of thinking about that. I don't think I saw the kind of leadership that I would want to see. This is not a, an excoriation of the, of the Biden administration. I think it's about um, tweaking the kind of foreign policy that we had. I think the messaging needs to be consistent vis-a-vis -vis Israel. Um, I, I don't think that messaging to the extremes um, in, in our country is, is really the way to ensure stability in that part of uh, the world. I think you want to try to maintain a certain amount of stability, even from administration to administration. And I would say, actually, that's the biggest thing that I would point to. We've seen a real pendulum swing from Democrat to Republican to Democrat to Republican and back to Democrat again, in terms of how they view conflicts like this. Some will shrug, some will want to get more involved and try to make permanent peace deals. Um, some will, will just sort of say, hey, well, that's not really our problem. Let's just leave it to the Iranians and the Israelis to slug it out. I think we need to start to come up with something that's sustainable. Um, I didn't feel like I saw that, certainly not this round, maybe not the previous rounds either. I'd like to see some more stability by the fifth round, um, and that's the hope. So I will end it there. Um, I thank you very much for, for listening in, for watching, for attending. Um, and um, uh, again, the book uh, just written uh, is called Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War. It's out by FDD Press, but it's available on Amazon primarily or other places that you might buy books. Um, hope you buy it and um, hope you enjoyed the, uh, the lecture today and happy to take questions. All right. Yeah. So we'll take questions now. If you have um, questions for Dr. Shanzer, please feel welcome to comment in the Q&A section at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Um, and I have a question just kind of start um, the Q&A session off. Could you talk about um, what Prime Minister Bennett's government's policy um, will be towards Gaza going forward? Absolutely. Um, it's a great question. I mean, first of all, the foreign minister of Israel, Yair Lapid, came out with an interesting paper. I don't know how practical it is, but I would say that there is, um, they're talking about um, trying to engage with the people of Gaza and even to a certain extent, the Hamas government, if you will, um, economically to try to make lives better in, um, in, in this territory. I, I, you know, a lot of people have talked about similar things in the past. I don't know how feasible it is so long as Hamas is in power. There are really interesting questions. You know, Bennett, um, Prime Minister Bennett has a very strange coalition that he's cobbled together of people that are on the right, the left, and the center. Um, it even includes an Islamist. Um, uh, his name is Mansour Abbas. And um, there is a lot of concern that if there is a Gaza war that erupts and Bennett wants to respond uh, with war, um, respond in kind, if you will, that it might actually pull apart the coalition itself. That Mansour Abbas, this Islamist, may decide, you know what, I can't, I can't be a party to this. So uh, the next war could, in fact, trigger political instability in addition to the chaos that these conflicts typically have. Um, that's, of course, only a theory right now. It's unproven, um, but uh, certainly it'll be something to keep an eye on. Great, thank you. Um, so I'm not seeing any questions coming. Oh, wait. 
Okay, we do have a question. Sorry. Um, Iran has built up um, incredible strategic depth to Israel through Iraq and into Syria. How long can Israel tolerate Iranian proxies in Iraq and Syria? So that's a that's a great question. Um, there is a chapter in the book on this. It's uh, chapter nine, actually. And somebody was just asking about it the other day. Um, the, it's about what Israel calls the war between wars, or campaign between wars. Um, which is basically an asymmetric campaign that the Israelis have decided to launch with the realization that if they allow the status quo to continue on a number of issues, that um, they will be left at a strategic disadvantage. So that means that Israel is going to be actively targeting Iranian uh, nuclear uh, assets. And we've seen that, the destruction of, um, of some of the nuclear uh, facilities, whether by cyber means, um, or through uh, kinetic means, there's actually the assassination of the father of the Iranian nuclear program uh, not too long ago. Um, but there's also been some other things where I mean they've targeted Iranian vessels on the high seas when they're believed to be uh, you know providing assistance to uh, terrorist groups or regimes that are uh, that are targeting Israel. Um, but I would say that the most pronounced aspect of this campaign between wars has been the steady bombing of assets in Syria itself. And I think that gets to the question here is that the Israelis continue to see weapons that are flowing in. Um, the Iranians have tried to exploit the fog of war um, and just overall the chaos in places like Iraq. I think Iraq poses less of a threat to Israel. There's a longer range rockets um, that would have to penetrate Israeli air, airspace. And the Israelis do have some pretty, um, you know, uh, technically excellent um, uh, in missile defense. But what I would say, though, is that what you see in, in Syria is really a, a, just a knockdown, drag out battle um, over whether Iran can get these weapons into the hands of terrorists and put them close enough to Israel's um, borders so that they could pose a direct threat. Some of them, by the way, are also going through to Lebanon. Um, and so the effort has been to try to disrupt Hezbollah uh, from getting these weapons. The real problem that the Israelis see is that the Iranians are sending um, parts or um, entire PGMs, precision guided munitions. And with enough of these, uh, Iran and its proxies may be able to circumvent Iron Dome, may be able to hit strategic targets within five to 10 yards of their mark. Um, this means that you know, Israel could sustain real damage in the future. And so the war between wars continues apace. It is a serious issue. Um, the Israelis see it as actually really um, uh, the PGM issue is probably their second most dire threat, second only to the Iranian nuclear program itself. So I expect this battle, shadow battle, if you will, to continue um, for, for months, if not years to come. We have another question here um, from Facebook. Uh, not directly related, uh, but what are your thoughts on the recent announcement from Colombia's defense minister that two Iranian Quds Force members were arrested in June 2021 for plans to assassinate Israeli, American, and other foreign nationals? So it's it's interesting, but we have seen the infiltration of Iran and Hezbollah in particular throughout Latin America. We've seen it in Argentina, where, of course, the Israelis have been attacked uh, directly in the early 1990s. Uh, but not hard to uh, imagine that this sort of thing would be happening in Colombia. We see a huge amount of activity in the tri-border area uh, related to Iran and Hezbollah. They've exploited that. Um, there's a, a narco-terrorism uh, connection 
Uh, Hezbollah has derived a huge amount of its um, income from uh, from uh, narco connections. Uh, you know what works well for smuggling weapons uh, works well for smuggling drugs and money, and so Hezbollah has, has capitalized on that. And so uh, what I would say is Latin America is increasingly a problem. You know, it's interesting. I, I, you know, we've always heard about these stories about how the southern border of the United States can be infiltrated. Um, you know, we were talking for a while about Al Qaeda and, and uh, you know, and ISIS and Sunni Islamists. First of all, my experience in the U.S. government was that we had to be a lot more concerned about the northern border, where you had a lot of North African um, operatives uh, who spoke French were able to more easily integrate on the northern border. Um, and then there was all this concern about, you know, these Sunni jihadists coming in from the south. I never really saw that when I was inside, and I still am not sure that we can fully substantiate it. But I would say that given the, the Shiite terrorism presence that we see in Latin America, right, stemming from Iran and Hezbollah, that that is something to watch. Um, I don't know how easily they integrate into Mexican culture, for example, or Latin American culture. But for those that have been there and have learned the language and have learned the customs and culture over time, you know, um, it's it, it's certainly something to watch. All right. So I believe that is all the time um, that we have this evening. I would like to thank Dr. Shanzer for joining us and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Shanzer. Thank you.